I finally found the mask I like to wear. Thank you, uh, Richard and Claudia Totter with us this morning, and they brought me my brand new Dodger mask, so I guess, I guess I'm good to go with that, huh? Wow. It's hot inside that mask, though. That's probably why I don't like to wear them, but two things. One thing first. Was that awesome? Riley did an awesome job. I was so, uh, wow. Um, I, I, I have to confess, um, I was brought to tears a little bit by that, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing when you have adults who love to lead worship and love to sing, but they're willing to hand a microphone to a 10-year-old, 8-year-old, however old Riley is, I don't know. Just had a birthday. I should know that, huh? Anyway, I appreciate uh, you all letting uh, Riley sing. And maybe one day we're going to have all three of the girls holding a microphone and do a little trio for us, and that'd be cool, too. So, oh, two people applauded. We have three of us are voting for that. So, Oh, my. So if you picked up a bulletin this morning, if you saw the bulletin that was online, or if you've been paying attention and not falling asleep the last two or three weeks, we are launching this week our small group ministry. And so as was mentioned, tomorrow evening, Monday evening, uh, Janine's women's group is going to launch. I'm sorry for throwing curves to the guys. They thought 6.30 p.m. and they weren't paying close enough attention. My hope is by doing it early enough in the morning that some of the guys that are still working can come by for an hour before they have to go off to work. I don't know how that's going to work out, but uh, that, that's kind of my hope. And so we have groups meeting all week. There's a group on Friday night, a group on Thursday night, uh, the group continuing on Wednesday night. So there's lots of opportunity. And uh, the two groups that are meeting in, in uh, homes, uh, the Friday night group that um, Eddie and Patty are hosting, and the group also that uh, Vet and uh, Jennifer hosting. Uh, their plan right now, while the weather holds, is to meet outside, so there's a little bit of more space for social distance and so on. So if you're concerned about that, you might consider one of those options as an opportunity. And uh, Wednesday night, we're kind of spread out pretty much, and so that distance thing kind of works. Um, how many times have you heard someone say in the last week, I'm done, I'm over it, I'm tired, let's put all this pandemic stuff to rest, Let's go on with life. How, how many times have you heard that in the last week? Yeah, I've said it at least 50 times this last week. I, I am so done. But uh, here we are. I, I want to bring you briefly a report from our search committee. One of our commitments that we have talked about every time that we've met. We've only met twice. But the commitment that uh, we've agreed upon and has been co- in conversation has been really, really strong is that we want to consistently be communicating to you so you kind of know, hey, we're meeting, so the things are happening, things are going forward. Um, I've mentioned to you who the people are on the committee, and I'm going to try to dredge those names up in my mind, which I always hate to give a list of names, because I always forget one person. But uh, we've met twice. This last time, uh, a large portion of our meeting time, uh, we had a dialogue, a conversation with Ed Short who uh, works with CE National as a part of our national ministries, the Caris Fellowship here in the U.S. And uh, part of Ed's ministry is helping churches like us through times of transition like this. We had a phenomenal conversation with Ed. Um, I don't, didn't know him real well ahead of time. I'd met him, had conversation, but really didn't know him very well. Um, but I was very, very impressed with his presentation, his response to questions. Um, because I'm not going to be here in a few weeks, I kind of felt bold enough to ask him what I thought were some really, really hard questions. 
and uh, he answered those really, really well. So nobody responded to that few weeks comment. I'm a little concerned about that. Um, so we want to. We just want you to know we, we're meeting. Uh, we're connecting with some people that we're going to talk about possibly helping us in the process rather than trying to do it all ourselves. Uh, we're privileged to be a part of a network of churches around the country now called the Caris Fellowship. Uh, we've got some great people that are available to help us, and so we're exploring that. Pray for us about that because we're going to probably come down to having to make a choice between uh, Ed Short with CE National and then a couple of guys that I love and admire and appreciate. Uh, they work with another organization called Assist that assists churches in a variety of ways. And we're going to have to choose between these two or choose not to use either of them. And uh, we just need wisdom to know how to do that. And so just as a reminder, um, on that search committee are uh, three of our elders, including myself. That's Tim Lansing, who's chairing the committee, and uh, Dave Goodwin. Three of us are representing our four elders. We gave Ron the, the year off this time. Uh, our three deacons, uh, Eddie and uh, Vet and Victor, are all a part of that group as well. Into that circle, we've also invited Tracy uh, Lansing as a part of that group. Uh, Chewy Guterres is a part of that group. Uh, <laughs> clapping for Dad. I love it. Um, who am I missing? Oh, Matt. Matt. I always call him Matt the Drummer because I can't pronounce his last name. So, uh, so I, did I get everybody? Who did I forget? Everybody, anyway, I think that's the group. So if you have questions and, and want to know more, you can contact or connect with any of those that are part of the group and uh, ask questions. They don't know a whole, whole lot to tell you yet. Um, I've already told you more than they know, so they may not be able to answer questions, but uh, form those, those conversations going forward, and we'll try to keep you up to date. And it'll either be my task or Chewy's task uh, as we meet uh, on Sunday mornings. We'll give you kind of an update and a report. With all of that, let me just uh, pause and kind of regroup for, for me, if not for you, and, and just look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come this morning uh, with hearts prepared to worship you. We've sung of your love. We've sung of your grace. We've sung of your mercy. Uh, we've been reminded that you're a great and mighty God, that you've created the heavens and the earth with your great power and your outstretched arm. There's nothing too difficult for you. We've been reminded that you as our creator God love us, care for us, provide for us. And so, Lord, even as we come this morning, we would come with hearts full of thanksgiving, hearts full of the joy that we just sang about. Joy not because of the circumstances of life, because certainly those circumstances today do not deliver joy. But you do. And you tell us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so, Lord, we would go forward into this day, into this week, uh, in the strength of your joy. Fill us to overflow this morning with your joy. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we open your word together and explore your truth. Help us this morning not only to hear, but to be doers of that which we hear together. We would be grateful as you do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. How often have you heard the phrase, all that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing? I'm not sure the origin of that quote. As I was looking it up on the internet, I was kind of surprised at how many different people that's attributed to. One of the best sources traces it all the way back to a time in the Russian Revolution. 
But it's a simple statement. All that's needed for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And one of my concerns, one of my fears, I guess, if I can use that word, is that too often we as God's people find ourselves guilty of doing nothing. And it just seems to me so often it's true, even in times like this, where in the midst of all this stuff going on in life, we're approaching an election which many are saying is the most strategic, most important, most significant election in the history of our country. And we approach this, and for so many Christians, there's an apathy, an indifference, um, I would plead guilty sometimes, many times, not sometimes, many times of a cynicism in my own heart and mind toward uh, the government, how it operates, what it does, and, and so on. But 30 days from now, 30 days, four weeks, one month, 30 days from now, we're going to be voting to elect a new president. Or to reelect the president that's already there. And I find a statistic that's troubling to me is that according to those who do these surveys, and I'm certainly no expert at this, there are 25 million Christians who are not registered to vote. 25 million people like you and me who this morning most of which are probably attending church in one form or another, in this country, eligible to vote, not registered. 25 million people. 25 million people like you and me who hold similar theological views, similar, hopefully, life values, and hopefully would vote those life values, right? Not registered to vote. And so I think about this thing of of whether it's apathy, whether it's indifference, um, whatever it is. My concern is that God would find us guilty of doing nothing or little. At perhaps one of the most strategic times in our nation's history. And so my encouragement to you this morning is... Number one, if you're not registered to vote, register to vote. And by the way, just because I believe in making it easy, there's copies of registration forms on the back table. If you're not registered to vote, I want to encourage you, exhort you, challenge you, uh, register to vote. Not only register to vote, but obviously if you're registered to vote, I'm hoping you will also vote. But be prepared to vote. You know, our challenge as God's people is not to vote Republican values or to vote Democratic values. Our goal as believers in Jesus Christ, followers of this book, our goal is to vote biblical values. And so my job is not to tell you whom to vote for. I believe my role is to encourage you to vote Values that are reflected in this book. Biblical values. And so, I prefer not to tell people who I'm going to vote for. I prefer to tell people what I'm voting for. Does that make sense? And so, going forward, register to vote, be prepared to vote, and encourage others to do the same. And perhaps the single most important thing that we can do 
in place of doing nothing, the single most important thing we can do is what? Pray. Pray for our country. Pray for our leaders. The most important thing we can do is to pray. And so I want you to come this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want you to listen to Paul's admonition. As the Apostle Paul speaks to us about part of our role and responsibility in this culture as followers of Jesus. My hope over the next month going up to the election is for us on Sunday mornings to focus a little bit on what is our role as God's people in the culture in which we live. What is God's expectation of us as we live and exist and serve in this culture in which he's placed us? And um, I'm planning right now to preach next Sunday on a, a message I hadn't planned on, I hadn't thought about. But I've been reading through the prophets, and I was reading through Daniel uh, last week. And I got to Daniel chapter 9, and that chapter has just grabbed me by the throat. And my suspicion is next Sunday we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9. But this morning, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes these words. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so there's, there's kind of four big ideas here that flow out of my major thought as I've read this passage and reflected on it, is this. It ought to be a priority in your life and mine to pray for our country and for its leaders. If I understand what Paul is saying here, it must be a priority in your life and in mine to be praying for our country and especially for its leaders. Uh, Notice, first of all, in this passage that that's exactly what Paul says. Prayer must be a priority in each of our lives. He uses the word then in my translation to introduce this second chapter. Your translation might include the word therefore. And it reflects back on what he's been talking about in chapter 1, where he's exhorting Timothy, this young pastor, placed in this role of pastoring a church. And Paul is challenging Timothy to teach the truth. His specific focus is on the words the faith. And if I've counted correctly in the book of 1 Timothy, 16 times, 18 times, he uses the word faith, the faith. And this is Paul's whole focus. And he's challenging Timothy to challenge those who are teaching falsehood and for him to be proclaiming truth. And he flows out of that first chapter with that focus on the faith. And he says, therefore, therefore. And then you find these words, first of all. What does the words, first of all, suggest to you? Priority. It's the first thing to do. So when when Tracy hands Don his honeydew list, and there's a list, the thing that she puts as number one, why is that number one on the list? It's most important. You know, mow the lawn first. You haven't mowed it in a month. It looks really ugly. Our neighbors are, you know, gossiping about it. Get out there. The first thing on the list. Paul says, 
First of all, the first thing on the list ought to be what? Prayer. It says, first of all, I urge. What does the word urge suggest to you? We have a word in our English language that starts with that word urge. What is it? Urgent. Urgency. When you hear the word urgency and urgent, what does that imply? This is critically important. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. Prayer needs to be a priority in my life and in your life. And right now, there's this huge wave of guilt that whenever someone stands up and talks about prayer and it's a priority and you start feeling guilty, I don't pray enough, I need to pray more. Um, That's not my intention or my hope this morning. I would confess to you, I don't pray enough. I don't pray often enough. I don't spend enough time in prayer. And even worse, God has given me a wife who spends all day in prayer. Half the night in prayer because she has insomnia. I I have a wife that prays all the time. And I wish that God would just kind of count that for my benefit. And then I could coast and not feel guilty, right? So we can always do, you've heard me use this phrase before, mo better. And my my prayer and hope this morning is God, God would challenge each one of us just to do a little mo better. And so Paul says this this ought to be a priority. First of all, then, I urge this list that he gives us. Prayer should not be the last resort. Prayer should not be... Have you ever heard the phrase, well, the least I can do is pray for you? No, that's not true. The most you can do is to pray, right? Richard, do you remember Dave Seifert telling us that? Forty... Way, way many years ago. When Richard and I were intern youth pastors getting paid peanuts to work 70 hours a week. Um, I remember Dave Seifer, one of our mentors, uh, he used that phrase all the time. The most you can do is to pray. And, and that's stuck with me all these years. The most we can do is to pray. Karl Barth said it this way. I'm not a great fan of all of his theology, but I love this quote. To clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Isn't that good? To clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. We need to see prayer as a priority in our lives. We need to see prayer as more important than we do. I heard a guy on the radio, I listened to uh, Southern, Southern Gospel and... Sometimes they do these interviews with some of the artists, and and one of the men last week said, it's never a bad idea to pray. And as I was listening to that and kind of reflecting on it, I thought, not only is it never a bad idea, it's never a bad time to pray. And I thought, well, that's kind of backwards because it sounds kind of negative. Probably what I want to say Sunday morning is, it's always a good idea to pray. It's always a good time to pray. Prayer needs to be a priority in each of our lives. The second thing that flows out of this is not only that prayer should be a priority, but that prayer for our government leaders is especially important. Paul says it this way, first of all, then I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. We ought to pray for everybody, right? But he adds to that, for kings and all those who are in authority. 
And so one of our obligations as citizens in the country in which God has placed us is that we are praying for those in authority. Praying for our president. Who was it in our group this morning that kind of prayed through the whole entire uh, government? Uh, prayed for the judicial system, the legislative, the president, you know, co- kind of covered all the bases. Those are all part of what's included here. Do you pray for the governor of our state? <sighs> yeah, I need to pray for him. Do you pray for the mayor of the city in which you live? Do you pray for the mayor of Norwalk? And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I have prayed for the mayor of the city in which I live. I have faithfully and regularly prayed for Don for years. But I've noticed since he was not reelected this last cycle, I don't pray for the new guy. I don't like him. Oh, I said that in public. Um, I, I shouldn't say I don't like him. I have issues. And so if I have issues, shouldn't I be praying more? And it just dawned on me, Roy, you're, you're, not pray, you're, you're not praying. We need to pray for those that are in leadership over us. Um, by the way, when Paul wrote these words, when Paul wrote these words to Timothy, who was the president of the Roman Empire? Who, who was sitting in the top chair? Who was the top dog? Who was the emperor? A little known guy by the name of Nero. Nero was famous for lots of stuff. None of it good. Nero uh, burned the city of Rome and blamed the Christians, leading to persecution. Nero was one of those Caesars who delighted in taking uh, Christians alive, uh, covering them with oil, mounting them on poles, and then lighting them on fire to provide light for his parties in the evening. Nero was not a nice guy. And Paul says to the Christians through Timothy, pray for those in authority. Pray for those leaders. We pray for them no matter how good or bad they are. This is my list as I thought about this. We pray for them no matter how good or bad they are, no matter which political party or affiliation they have, no matter whether they are liberal or conservative, no matter how moral or immoral they are, no matter how just or unjust they are. We ought to pray for them. I've been given a stack of petitions to call for the recall of Governor Newsom. And uh, they're sitting at home on a counter in the kitchen, and I keep walking by them and going, you know, far more important than recalling Governor Newsom is what? Praying for him. And I would be the first to confess I've never prayed for Governor Newsom. I don't think so. If I have, I've forgotten. We need to pray for our government leaders. You know, when, when I think of the restrictions we're under as a church, I think of the restrictions we're under just as people. Um, I get a little ticked off at our governor. I, I, no, that's not right. I get very ticked off at our governor, you know. We need to pray for him. I don't know what you would do if you were sitting in Sacramento. I don't know what you would do if you were the governor of the state of California. I don't know what you would do if there was a pandemic and people were sick and people were dying. What would you do? I don't know what I would do. I'm glad I'm not sitting in that chair. Yesterday, I talked with one of my friends. He attends a church in Corona. And church service this morning was canceled because one of the men in the church uh, tested positive this last week. This gentleman is a uh, 
police sergeant in charge of the Corona jail. <laughs> That's a perfect place to catch the Rona, right? Anyway, um, he tested positive and was at church last Sunday, along with his wife and his daughter, who both sing in their worship team. And so those three people circulated among the church family, and the pastor made the decision to cancel church. They're not meeting this morning. They're just meeting online. And my first reaction was, well, that's crazy. Why would you cancel church? And then I took a step back and I thought, well, what would I do? What would I do as the pastor of this congregation? What would I do if someone sitting here this morning tested positive? And you called in and said, Pastor Roy, I just got tested. I'm positive. I was at church. You know, what would I choose to do? I'd let the elders decide so you couldn't blame me. That's the easy way out. But sometimes it helps as you're praying to kind of put yourself in that person's chair. You know, what would I do? And would I be able to sit out here and be as critical if I thought of myself sitting in that chair in Sacramento or that, that chair in Washington, D.C.? We need to pray for those who are in authority. We pray because, one, God commands us to. And we pray because they're only in office because uh, who put them there? God did. God did. And one of the themes of Scripture that's just so hard to ignore, uh, Daniel 2, we may get to Daniel 2 sometime in the next month. God changes times and seasons. He sets, sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. In Romans 13, it says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. And so we need to make prayer a priority, and we need to make praying for government leaders an important part of our prayer life. George Washington said it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Don't you wish all of our government leaders believed that? We ought to be praying that they would come to that understanding. That they would come to understand that they cannot lead apart from God and the Scriptures. Abraham Lincoln said this, I love this, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seem insufficient for the day. So we ought to be praying for our government leaders. That needs to be part of our priority. The third thought that flows out of this for me is, Paul uses four words to describe kind of what that prayer life is supposed to include. Uh, in my translation, he uses the words entreaties. Your translation might have the word request or petition. The idea of that word is there's a specific need that's being appealed, appealed to. What is the need, God, that, that needs to be addressed? And our prayers need to focus on what is needed, what is necessary. That's, a, that's an entreaty. Uh, the, the second word Paul uses is the word prayers, which is the big umbrella word for prayer in the New Testament. And it's a fascinating word because sometimes it's translated with our English word, worship. The literal word in the original language is two words put together. The word toward and the word kiss. To kiss toward. And it was used especially of appeals that were made to kings. That when you approached a king to make a request, you were coming and kissing toward. There was a worship element in your prayer. It was a, an act of worship. And, and we ought to see our prayers for our government leaders as a part of our life of worship. 
coming to the King of Kings to pray for our King, our President, our Congress. Entreaties, prayer. The third word, he uses the word intercession. And the idea of this word is the idea of two people coming together, meeting together and having a conversation. And as I was thinking about this, the thought that occurred to me is, is this is almost like the idea of you sitting across the table from a very good friend. You're sitting across the table sharing a cup of coffee, a glass of iced tea, whatever. But you're sitting across the table having a conversation and you're sharing with your friend the need of another friend. My friend needs this help. Can you help my friend? The, the word intercession has that kind of an idea of, of an intimate conversation where you're bringing into that conversation somebody else that's in need. Entreaties, prayers, intercession. The fourth word Paul uses is the simple word thanksgiving. Our word grace. To pray from a grateful heart. Our Can we be grateful that God in His infinite wisdom, God in His providential care for us, somehow in all of that, God has chosen to place as the governor of the state of California, Mr. Newsom. Can can I embrace that that's what God has done? And to be thankful that God's in control. I'm thankful God's in control. I don't know about you. Um... We're not passive observers of our government at work. We're not victims of what the government does. But we need to know how to pray for those in leadership and those in authority. It was in the middle of the Civil War, in a time of hardship, a time of weariness, a time of lots of sorrow, lots of loss of life was in the midst of the Civil War, in the midst of all of this going on, and there was no end in sight, that a resolution was presented to President Abraham Lincoln suggesting that he declare a National Day of Prayer. It's always a good time to pray. It's always a good idea to pray. And so this resolution came to President Lincoln, and he said this in response, at least this is part of what he said, We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us and have vainly imagined that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God who made us. And with that, President Lincoln called on the nation for a day of prayer. There's a lot of wisdom captured in those words. Are we too proud? Are we too forgetful? Are we too self-sufficient to realize the necessity and the priority of prayer? That was Abraham Lincoln's concern. We pray for our government leaders. Prayers are priority. It includes these four ideas, the entreaties, the prayers, the intercession, the thanksgiving. And then I love this because Paul tells us that prayer for our leaders is intended to lead us to a peaceful, quiet life. Anybody here in favor of a peaceful and quiet life? Got four hands. I'm encouraged. The rest of you can have turmoil and upheaval. 
You know, Paul says the whole point of our prayers, the whole point of praying for kings and all who are in in authority is so that, here's the reason, here's the purpose, here's why, we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Tranquility, peace, stillness, quiet. Uh, That word quiet even includes the idea of being sedentary. The root word is to take a seat. And Paul is telling us that one of the reasons why we have upheaval, one of the reasons why we have challenges and difficulties and things are all disturbed and all shaken up, we don't have a quiet and tranquil life. Why not? We're not praying. We need to make prayer a priority and we need to pray for our leaders. And I just think quiet, tranquil, peaceful life. Of course, he uses the words then godliness and holiness that are to characterize us as we live in this crazy pandemic, riot torn, everything that's going on. We're to lead lives that are godly and holy. And I think about those words godliness and holiness, and I reflect back on the last six months. And I think to myself, have I always lived my life in a way that others would identify as godly and holy? Have the things I've said about the pandemic and masks and everything else going on, you know, have the things I've put on Facebook, have the things I've said to others, have they always been marked by godliness and holiness? You see, there's that, that balance in what Paul says. I want to have a peaceful, quiet, tranquil life, don't you? But Paul says the balance to that is, in spite of what's going on around me, as I'm praying for my country, as I'm praying for my leaders, part of my challenge in addition to praying is I'm living a godly and, and holy life. The words that leave my mouth are words that are godly, words that are holy. But I I love that idea of a quiet and peaceful life. And then the thought struck me as I was reflecting on this. Even yesterday afternoon, I was sitting out on my patio and reading this passage through several times and just kind of meditating on it. And one of the ideas that struck me is Paul says, the reason, the purpose that I'm praying for my leaders is that I might lead a quiet and tranquil life. And then I thought, you know, I don't know that that's always my motive when I'm praying for our country. I don't know that that's always my motive when I'm praying for our president and for the Congress. I think a lot of times my motives are a lot more self-serving. Because I think in terms of what I want, what I think I need, um, sometimes my prayers for our government are more motivated by frustration, maybe by anger than they are by peaceful, quiet, tranquil life. And so maybe Paul's speaking a little bit to our our motivations as we pray. You want to make America great? Let me rephrase that. Do you want to make America great? Okay, I got one yes, I'll say it again. Do you want to make America great? Okay, that's better. 
And I, I guess I could say, do you want to make America a great again and do the whole mega thing? But as I read this passage, what is the secret? What is the key to making America great? God's people praying. God's people praying for our country. God's people praying for our leaders. We need to make prayer a priority. How do you do that? Well, I would be honest and say, if you ask my wife that question, you'd probably get better answers than mine. Because it's certainly a much higher priority in her life than in mine. There's others sitting here among us that are good models of prayer being a high priority in their lives. They're probably as better people to answer that question. But when I think of times in my life when prayer has been a very, very high priority, it started with a decision, I'm going to make prayer a priority. It started by starting, make a decision and then start. And then someone says it's as simple as what? Keep going. You can't wait until you have time. You have to make time. But it starts with the decision. Lord, help me to make it a priority. Help me to make this more important. I think there's value also in having a partner to pray with. Think having someone that you either meet with face-to-face, you meet with on the telephone, you meet with on the Internet, however that plays out. Having a partner that you pray with is huge. My wife has two women that she prays with. I don't know if she prays with them every day, but it seems like she does. Wanda used to live about three blocks away from us and has become a great friend over the last 30 years. Uh, Two years ago, she moved to North Carolina. And Andrea's on the phone with Wanda, like I said, almost every day. um, And they're praying. Uh, She has another friend. Carol lives, I don't know, six blocks away, a half a mile maybe. And uh, she and Carol are on the phone praying every day. It's good to have a prayer partner. I think a good prayer partner oftentimes also can be your spouse, your husband or your wife. One of the sad realities in the Christian church is very few couples pray together. Very few. I read a survey recently that said one in a thousand couples. Out of a thousand couples that pray regularly together, one will experience failure in their marriage. One in a thousand. There's value to that time of praying together. And whether it happens in the evening, whether it happens in the morning, whether it happens both times, uh, there's, there's value and strength and help to be had in praying with a partner, praying with your spouse. One of the things that caught my eye in this passage also as I think about praying is down in verse 8, Paul concludes this paragraph and he says, Therefore... I want, what are the next two words? The men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Paul says, I want the men to pray. And I thought, why in the world does Paul do that? And so as I'm asking myself that question, I found a survey. I found a survey that said 80% of people that are enrolled in different groups and organizations that are involved in ministries of intercession where people are praying for others, one another. Eighty percent of people who are regularly involved in ministries of intercession are women. 
And some suggest, well, that's because women, by their nature, is kind of nurturing. They have more compassion than guys do, so they're kind of drawn more to that ministry. Um, Women have a higher sensitivity to spiritual things, and and I believe all that's true. But guys, we're supposed to be the leaders, aren't we? Aren't we? We're supposed to be the leaders. We're supposed to be leading our church, our wives, our families. And that's why Paul says, I want the men to pray. One of the reasons I think why prayer is not a priority is that we forget that we're in a spiritual battle. We forget what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness in high places. It's not people that are our enemies. It's not people that are the problem. It isn't people... This is a spiritual battle. And because we don't believe that, because we don't fully embrace that, we become guilty maybe of what Abraham Lincoln said. Self-sufficient. Don't need the Lord. We got it. Have you seen the t-shirt that says, God's got this? Do we really believe that God's got this pandemic? Do we really believe that God's got this election? Do we really believe... All of that. All of that's true in the midst of spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. John Piper said it this way. Until we know that life is war, we won't know what we are praying for. Until we know that life is war, we won't know what we're praying for. We need to make prayer a priority. And so what I want you to do is to make prayer for our church a priority. Will you do that? Pray for our church in this time of transition. Pray for our elders. Pray for our search committee. Pray for me. Pray for the guy that God's already chosen to be our pastor that we're going to find, that he's going to lead us to. Make that a priority in your prayer. Pray for our country. Pray for this election. If you picked up a bulletin this morning on the back of my sermon outline, I've put here a document called 30 Ways to Pray for People in Authority. You'll find a copy of this in the bulletin online that Tim sent out last night. Um, It's easily printed. There's a website here you can go go to and get more information. But 30 Ways to Pray for People in Authority. By the way, what's the most important prayer that you can make to the eternal God regarding our president, our Supreme Court justices, our Congress, our governor in the state of California, and and so on. What is the single most important prayer that you can pray for all of these men and women who serve in those places in our country? What is the most important request you can make? They come to faith. And isn't it interesting that Paul says in the middle of this passage that I read this morning... He says that we might lead a quiet life, all godliness, dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's not only the most important prayer you can make for those 
in leadership and in authority. That's the most important prayer you can make for any single individual on the planet, right? So we ought to be praying that way. Use the 30 days to pray. Join with others to pray. One of our small groups. Get a prayer partner. Ask someone else to meet with you virtually or personally and pray. Um, And whether you pray 30 days, got 30 days to go. Um, we need to be people of prayer. One of the things that impressed me as I thought about how I should respond to this passage was one of the things that stretches me in my prayer life is choosing to fast in one form or another. Um, you could choose to fast for the next 30 days. Many people have been fasting with a 40-day window. Uh, you could choose to do that. Um, you can choose to fast in a variety of ways. Uh, some people will go 30 or 40 days without eating at all. I tried to do that many years ago when I was uh, serving with Ed Trenner in our church in Orange. We, we set out on a 40-day fast. I think he made it 40 days. I think I bailed out at about 35 or somewhere. That is a tough, tough call. But you could fast one meal a day and use that time for prayer. Or if fasting from food is a challenge, um, some people just physically cannot skip meals. I know when I skip meals that odds are I'm going to get a headache. I know that I will physically respond. And that's a challenge. Many people have that challenge. Uh, Maybe for you, there's other things you can fast from. Simple thing to fast from is one half-hour television program every day or every week. I could fast from a half-hour of a bike ride. That would be a sacrifice. I could do that. But to bring focus into our life, that's what fasting does for me. It brings focus. Because there's a specific period of time where I'm focused for a specific purpose to pray. You might choose to do that. Many people have. We need to make prayer a priority. We need to make prayer for our country and our leaders a priority. It needs to be more important in my life than it is today. It needs to be more important, I suspect, in your life than it is today. And again, my point is not to back up a dump truck of guilt and pile it on you, but to just to simply say, we need to be praying people. We need to pray. And one of the things that I grew to really love and appreciate about Pastor Rick's ministry was that was such a huge emphasis for Rick. You know, I would sit there some Sunday mornings and think, okay, we've prayed eight times in the last hour and a half. What's up with that? That's Rick. And that's not a bad thing because it's always a good time to pray. It's always a good time to pray. Prayer has been a significant, critical element in revivals around this planet in more than the last 200 years. Dr. J. Edwin Orr, I don't like to read long quotes, but I want to close with this. Dr. J. Edwin Orr, was an interesting man for lots of reasons, very highly educated. I remember he used to speak on the Christian radio station in Long Beach that my father-in-law managed. And he had a, when he recorded his sermons, he had one of those little bells on the desk that you ring at the hotel when you want the, you know. And uh, as he was preaching, he'd hammer that bell. I think it was the drive of the point home. And he would hammer that bell. Uh, he, w- he was a fascinating man. But he made the study of revival. Uh, a very, very critical and important part of his life. And he became uh, perhaps the most noted authority on, on revivals 
uh, around our planet in the last 200 years. Following America's war for independence, the country went into a moral and spiritual tailspin. Alcoholism was a major problem, as nearly 8% of the population could be classified as confirmed drunkards. Crime was on the rise. Churches were in decline. One Massachusetts pastor reported that in 16 years, not one young person had joined his church. John Marshall, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, wrote that the church was too far gone to be revived. Too far gone to be revived. Is our God bigger than that? He certainly is. He's much bigger than that. A survey of the Harvard student body found that not even one student claimed to be a believer. The influence of Christianity in the church was definitely on the wane. Then God intervened. He did it through a concert of prayer. Jonathan Edwards, inspired by a Scottish minister's effort to rally that nation's Christians to pray for revival, issued a little book entitled... A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth. May have been a small book, but the cover had to be big for that title, right? (laughs) Wow. The spiritual awakening that swept Great Britain after John Wesley's death also motivated another New England pastor to send out a plea for prayer. There developed a network of prayer meetings that involved churches all over the country. In 1795, they designated the first Tuesday of every quarter as a day of prayer. Soon, revival broke out in pockets here and there. Then came the great camp meetings in the summer of 1800. That revival launched the missionary movement and played a big part in the abolition of slavery. By the middle of that century, however, things had gotten bad again. One man who was grieved by all the materialism and strife called a prayer meeting in New York City. Only six people showed up. But the following week, there were 40. Within a few months, a number of churches and public buildings in downtown New York were filled with people praying. It wasn't long until a Chicago shoe salesman felt God's call in his life and began a 40-year ministry that resulted in million conversions. His name was D.L. Moody. It all started with prayer and was sustained by prayer. Then again, in the early years of Wales, uh, of the current century, Christian people sensed the need for awakening and began to pray. One of them was a praying young man named Evan Roberts of Wales. One night he asked his pastor for permission to speak after a prayer meeting. Only 17 people heard his plea for confession and obedience. But they responded and within days people were flocking to that church from other towns. The great Welsh revival was beginning and would eventually sweep over the rest of Britain as well as many European countries and others overseas. It began with prayer meetings. And culminated in a great spiritual harvest. Revival grows out of prayer. Especially the extraordinary prayer Jonathan Edwards talked about. That's what happens when people get up an hour early in the morning just to pray. Or skip their noon meal to spend time in prayer. When we pray, God will send revival. And Lord, that's my hope, my prayer this morning. That you would cause us to be a praying church that we would be a more faithfully praying church, that extraordinary prayer would mark the ministry of, of Norwalk Grace, that we would be men and women for whom prayer is a priority, for whom prayer for our country, prayer for our government leaders, prayer for revival would be a part of our daily lives. Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be the one who speaks, his voice would be the one who heard, 
Would you prompt and move in our hearts in such a way that, that we would agree with the Apostle Paul when he says, first of all then, I urge you to pray. Lord, make prayer a greater priority in my life. Make prayer a greater priority for me as I attempt to lead this congregation in the time you've given to us. I pray that you would make prayer more significant, more important. And Lord, we do pray for our president. We pray for his health, his healing. We also pray for, for his uh, government adversary, his opponent in this election, Joe Biden and his wife, for your health and, and care for them as well. Lord, we do pray for this process of choosing a new uh, Supreme Court justice and the great need for the significant role that that person will play. We pray that you would superintend and direct in that process. We would pause even in this minute to pray for California, for Governor Newsom. Lord, first of all, that he would come to faith, that you would draw him to yourself to know you as Lord and Savior. That you would bring to him people of godly wisdom that would help guide and direct decisions that are being made. Lord, we need great wisdom in these difficult and evil days. We pray for our government leaders. Pray even for the mayors of our cities, Norwalk, Bellflower, Whittier, Santa Fe Springs, Long Beach, these cities around us. Lord, these men and women also need your leading, your guiding, your direction, your wisdom. Would you be all that they need? Draw them to yourself as well. I know that the mayor of Whittier is a godly man, and we're grateful for him and the role that he plays. Might other of our local mayors be those that would come to know Jesus as Savior? And so we pray for our government. We pray for our leaders. We pray for revival. We pray for revival in our church, in our lives. We pray for revival in the churches of our our family, our Karis Fellowship. We pray for revival in the churches of Southern California, California, throughout the U.S., Lord, we need to be a nation who refocuses and returns to you. And I pray this morning it would start right here in Norwalk on this corner. Make us a people for whom prayer is a priority. And we'll give you thanks for doing that as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
On the back table, as I mentioned earlier, are voter registration forms. My encouragement to you is if you're not registered to vote, pick up one of those. And if those are all gone, I've got one up here. So do that. We've been encouraging you to sign up for a small group. Uh, the good news is you can just show up. You don't need to sign up. Uh, we were just hoping to get kind of an idea of how people would spread out. Um, so just show up. You've got an insert in the bulletin that shows you times and places. And uh, you're welcome to fit in anywhere and uh, choose to do that. You're all familiar with this verse in Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, and then I'll hear from heaven. I don't know if you've ever read the context uh, in this passage. Um, it's kind of fascinating to me because Solomon has just finished building that beautiful, glorious temple that he was privileged to build. He's dedicated that facility to the Lord. And in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, it says, Solomon finished the temple as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he planned to do in the construction of the temple and the palace. Then one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, this all precedes the verse we all know well. And God said this to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls. That ever happen around here? There may be times when I shut up the heavens so that no rain falls. Or command grasshoppers to devour your crops. We get experience. Or send plagues among you. Then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and restore their land. My eyes will be open, my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. And my prayer is that this will be a week where we, as God's people, will humble ourselves, pray, turn from sin, seek God's face, and pray. Pray for our country, pray for the, our leaders pray for the election. Can you do that? We all can do it. The question is, will you do it, right? Let's honor God in our lives this week as we seek to leave quiet and tranquil lives in dignity and godliness. Have a great week.